Hello and welcome to episode one of Healthy Debates, part of a brand new series of podcasts brought to you by the UK's best-selling women's well-being magazine, Healthy. I'm your host and Healthy Magazine Editorial Director, Ellie Hughes. Today, we're looking at all things mental health and well-being to tie in with our Healthy Mind issue of the magazine. On each episode of Healthy Debates, I'll be joined by three expert guests and fellow journalists who will each bring a health and well-being topic of their choosing for the panel to debate, dispute and demystify. If you like the sound of all of that, remember you can pick up the latest edition of Healthy magazine in your local Holland and Barrett store and on selected newsstands across the country. Or you can head on over to healthy-magazine.co.uk to get your digital fix of all things natural beauty, food, fitness, health and self. So, joining me for today's episode are Healthy Magazine journalists Abby Ray, Hattie Parrish and Laura Potter. How is everyone? Very well, thank you. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So, um, for this episode, we are focusing on Healthy Mind. I think we're all increasingly becoming aware of the link between our mental health and our physical health and particularly how crucial and, and difficult as well it can sometimes be to feel really that you've got a healthy mind. So we want to look at some of those issues today with the team um, and starting off with you, Laura, if that's okay. So for those of you that don't know and don't read Healthy Magazine regularly, Laura always writes our debate page, which is the page in the magazine where we find an issue that we think is quite controversial and potentially polarising. Laura does a fantastic job of finding two brilliant experts who really embody and believe in opposing sides of the debate. So this time around, I was really surprised by what uh, the conclusion was really from the debate. So the question was, are pessimists actually happier than optimists? And this surprised me because there's been so much focus on positive psychology and generally on happiness and how to be happier. The idea that in fact, by being more pessimistic, you could be happier felt quite unusual. Yeah, I felt the same when I started to research it. It felt almost like how would I find someone who would say that being negative could make you happier? Um, And I would also consider myself almost aggressively positive. (laughs) So (laughs) I was... not aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) But but when I started researching it, more and more came to light to show that there really is an argument for pessimism to improve your health and your well-being. Um, So I found two experts, both of whom felt really passionately on either side. Um, The person arguing for optimists was a positive psychology coach. Um, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong potentially, but he's called Reza Zolfagaro Fard. Yeah, and he was was (laughs) very nice, wasn't he? You said he He was lovely. Lovely. And if you could imagine a positive psychologist, he completely embodies it. He was very light and warm and almost giggly in our conversation to the extent where I just thoroughly enjoyed talking to him. I'm guessing there aren't that many experts you speak to who are giggly on the phone. So it was quite a nice change. (laughs) No, it was very different. And often we're talking about quite serious, meaty topics. So you don't expect to kind of giggle away with um, a psychologist while they tell you about something. But he was really interesting. And I think he um, made it really clear that we have a bit of a one dimensional view of what being an optimist is. And he was saying that the message had been pushed really hard in the past that it 
be positive, have a positive outlook. Everything must be on the bright side. But actually, it's the same with, with introverts as well, isn't it? They always you know there's been a lot of um, research recently, kind of writing about the fact that it's okay to be introverted. Not everyone has to be extroverted and outgoing and society kind of always praises the extroverts and kind of overlooks the introverts, but actually they've yeah. just got kind of positive benefits, but in a different way. Exactly. And he referred to it as sort of positive psychology 2.0, where you recognise that we all do have negative outlook because it's programmed into us to keep us safe. So Historically, if you the example he gave was if you heard rustling in the in the surroundings, a 100% optimist would think, oh, it's just my wife collecting firewood. But <laughs> a pessimist would think, it's a tiger, it's a saber-toothed tiger I'm about to get mauled to death. Um, which is why you have a negative influence to keep you safe, because you do need to consider whether it's right. a tiger. Obviously, modern threats are different. But um, <laughs> he talked about the fact that that's there, but you're an optimist because you recognize that, but you value life and you have motivations to keep yourself healthy because you, you're striving to achieve things and you recognize that life is a gift and you, that means that automatically you look after your health because you want to keep enjoying life. So it's all kind of wrapped up in one um, way of thinking. Which I find really, really interesting. And so who was your other expert arguing the other side? Unfortunately, I've got another different, difficult to pronounce surname there. So it was um, a reader in social and health psychology from the University of Sheffield called Fuchsia Sirois. Supposed to sound French. Obviously, that didn't. But just, um, just so you all know, Laura did actually ring the experts up to make sure she could pronounce their names properly. So yeah. that is how hard they are to pronounce that even exactly. after having done that. From this point forwards, <laughs> I'm only interviewing people called Smith, Jones. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I think I've ever heard of anybody being called Fuchsia before. No. I've heard a few roses and daisies, but not a <laughs> yeah. Fuchsia. She was fascinating. And I went into that interview. I'd already spoken to my optimist, so she had to convince me in a way more than you might expect. Um, and what she talked to me a lot about is a growing movement for defensive pessimism. So it's not that idea we have of pessimists who are just gloomy outlook, you know, think life's not worth living and why bother because everything's going to be bad and we're all going to die anyway. It's more this idea of being realistic, recognising things that worry you and then by recognising them, planning ways to avoid those outcomes. And what she said was it's a really useful tool, particularly if you suffer with anxiety, which we know is a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. and I so I suffer with anxiety myself and I've recently kind of managed to lessen it very much in my life, but it, it does become something that you just manage, you know, when you've been living with it for 25 years or so, you know, it's, and there's a lot of people I've spoken to as well who also, because people are a lot more open about it now because people just are about mental health issues in general. And it's, and it's something that very much I found is similar that they, they just avoid certain situations and yeah. you just factor it into your life. It becomes yeah. just part of you. And that's what she was saying. It's better. It's, um, it helps you take back control rather than being avoidant. You find Find a strategy that means, yeah, you recognise that you feel negatively and you worry, but that just gives you the stepping stone to look for ways to avoid that negative outcome, which can actually make you healthier and happier because you're prepared for things rather than shocked by negative outcomes. I had an issue with this argument though, because she said it as if people who are optimistic just don't consider those processes, but they do. I think they go through the exact same working. It's just that they have it with a healthier mindset on. I don't think yeah. 
optimists are blindly optimistic. They still know there are those hurdles, but they go into it thinking there will be a more positive outcome. Yeah, I completely understand what you mean. And actually, both of the experts touched on that in terms of if you're talking about extreme optimism and extreme pessimism, then either of those are bad. Yeah. So it's finding the balance. Um, And that's something that Reza talked about quite a lot, the um, positive psychology coach and consultant, because he was saying that people think optimists just giddily skip through life with their eyes closed, just believing mm. everything will be all right. But Walking it's actually... out in front of traffic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not I'll be fine. Every, everyone does that anyway. They're um, on their phones all the time. Yeah, but it doesn't mean naivety or being blind to negatives. It just means that you value life, so you fight for it and you mm. you take on challenges because you're not scared of them. One example he gave was that the first men that went to the moon couldn't have been pessimists because they'd never have gone. It was dangerous. It was expensive. It was a stupid idea. So you take more risks if you're naturally optimistic. So both arguments were really convincing. I mean, I have to say I enjoyed it because I found a bit of self-validation in there, to confess. I mean, I would would very much see myself as a defensive pessimist and that's how I cope. And it's very much um, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And that's also my coping strategy if I feel I've got a lot on or I'm worried about something. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the impression from Hattie's uh, <laughs> Hattie's uh, feedback that she might be an optimist. What, I, what do you think, Hattie? No, I think actually I'm a pessimist, but I just, I didn't like that part of her argument. The rest of it was fine. I thought she was just too sweeping with what she thought optimism was. Yeah. Because optimists do still recognise risks. They just think about them in a more positive way. Yeah. I think that was the, the issue. But no, I think I am probably a pessimist. And what about you, Abby? How do you see yourself? Uh, I would call myself an optimistic cynic. <laughs> so so I, I'd like the world to be wonderful and I kind of give it a chance to be wonderful, but I'm never surprised when it's not. <laughs> right. It sounds like everyone's got some middle ground, which yeah. is probably what both of these experts are. A healthy tension. Suggesting, yeah. Exactly. Shall we move on then to um, one of the articles that Hattie wrote this issue, which was, again, talking about rituals in beauty and how... Um, you might think of beauty as being quite superficial and almost quite vain, but in fact, it can actually have quite a key role in our mental health and well-being. So just to read the um, intro from the article, which I think sums up quite well, we're not suggesting that you should be swapping CBT, should you need it, for serums, but sometimes makeup rituals really do help you feel better. So Hattie, what did you find when you wrote this article? What surprised you? You know, what the main thing was, was that routines are such a huge part of our lives. I don't think we notice that so much. But one of the first things to slip when people do suffer from mental health conditions, not always, but for a lot of people that they lose those routines and those rituals and they're not doing the things they do every day, whether that's something to do to take care of themselves, like brushing their teeth, or whether it's, you know, getting up and going to work. And I thought the way that kind of the expert I spoke to posited it was that it's, Uh, just getting back into one routine like a beauty routine might help you start to gain control in others and make routines again feel human to you and something that you're able to do and skincare is obviously quite a positive thing to do anyway taking care of your skin is important and so it was kind of a two birds with one stone approach and of course it's not going to fix everything but it's a really good first step and as part of the research I did for this I found so so many first person accounts of people explaining how it had been a really huge part of their treatment, still a part of it, but I don't think that makes it any less valuable. Um, Yeah. I guess it's an act of 
self-care as well, isn't it? Yeah. Which is really important to, like if you're proving to yourself, you value yourself, mm. then that's a really important part of mental well-being and happiness. Yeah. And I think so. That I think that also ties in with part the questions that I've got in my head that it, it probably depends on the type of person that you are because I know, for example, my mother is a very visual person and her makeup routine and all that was very important. And when she was going through her treatment for cancer and, you know, going, undergoing chemotherapy and everything, it was really important to her to, to, you know, maintain the way that she looked to the outside world. And, and, you know, because that was where her self-confidence comes from. I'm completely the opposite. I really very relaxed about the way I look. I'm fairly like feral because I'm usually <laughs> swimming, swimming in rivers or, running up mountains or something. That, so, that explains it then. Yeah. So, so for me, that's, I suppose, my my makeup routine is something I just do so that the outside world can cope with me <laughs> rather than something I do as an act of self-care. But then there are other things like, my, I guess my acts of self-care are things like going to the gym and, you know, making sure I get good sleep. So mm. so it's, I think, yeah, you're probably right in the sense that as an as one element of self-care that that probably ties in. Mm. I mean, there were kind of two sides of it. So there was the self-care side and there was also the kind of fact that putting on makeup can be a mask. And while that can sound negative, it can be the thing that people need to get them out the door that day to make them feel like they can face the world. Yeah. And that was really interesting. And I really loved, so in the case studies I spoke to, uh, Jo Love, she was really, really lovely. And she, so she suffered from postnatal depression. Um, and she was, oh, I'm actually, I'm going to read a quote that she said. She said, uh, for me, it has been really helpful to see makeup in these more positive terms. However, at times I've certainly been guilty of hiding behind another layer of foundation or reaching for that ever brighter lipstick in a bid to stop people seeing the sadness beneath. And I thought, I don't know, she, yeah, she, I guess she touched on this derision that some people view makeup with, but argued that it's been one of the most harmless and accessible coping mechanisms for her. And yeah, I wonder kind of what we all made of this, the guilt we feel in indulging not only in self-care, but in makeup and sometimes using it as a mask to help us cope. So I think it can, when it comes to women and particularly beauty, we kind of, there is an air of guilt around it and, and a sort of fear of seeming being vain. viewed as superficial. Yeah. But I thought what she said was a really compelling argument. Yeah. And it seems a shame that we have to beat ourselves up for just enjoying yeah. makeup and enjoying looking a certain way. You know, people beat themselves up for what they eat, for not going to the gym. What now? You're not even allowed to put on a lipstick without feeling like people are judging you for being vain. Fat, Why not? You thin, enjoy it. All that kind of, yeah. yeah appearance. Mm. Anything kind of... that boosts your sense of happiness and well-being and confidence surely has to be a good thing, whatever that is. Yeah. And I think this is interesting just to go back to the self-care issue, because this again was something we covered in the magazine quite recently in hashtag self-care and the trend for lots of people to light candles around their lovely bathtubs and take Instagram photographs of themselves. And it could be seen as indulgent, but I liked what I liked about this article was it um, developed that argument that, that Laura had made actually in the self-care article she wrote before that it, it is now really acknowledged as being a really important part of emotional well-being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I'm really bad at. Actually, I'd like to go on a self care boot camp and be taught how to look after myself properly. Um, so, Abby, this one was going to be your topic for the day, if you don't mind. Um, so, this is about fitness and the role that exercise and fitness play in giving us a psychological and mental boost. I think it's something that, as a team, we probably all know intuitively because we are all you know, reasonably good at getting our fitness in and we know that we feel better 
no matter how tired we are. I'm not saying we're perfect. We're not. We often don't go. But at the end of the day at work, I know I always feel better if I cycle home. Just that little boost. We all have our things that we like doing around the team. So this was a bit more of a deep dive into the science behind it, just to kind of back up our intuition that it did play a role in mental health. So Abby, do you want to take us through a bit of what you found with that one? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I guess it probably won't come as a great surprise to many people that, you know, there is a positive correlation between kind of um, exercise and how you feel, because you know, I think we all know the release of endorphins that, that you get, that that gym buzz that you get in the, the, the classic gym junkie you know, <laughs> term. Uh, and I know quite a few of those and probably I'm slightly at risk of being one of those myself. Um, but there, there was, there's, as the article went on, it kind of dug a lot deeper into it about things like actually friends who work out together actually have better relationships outside of the gym. There's, I don't know whether it's some sort of like bonding hormone that has it or just they're more positive people because they do exercise and it does offset the depression. Does anyone here actually exercise with their friends? Just out of interest. I go (laughs) running with my boyfriend sometimes, but I don't know how positive it is because he's faster than me. <laughs> it's positive for the first two thirds and then he takes off and, you know, my competitive side is bruised. <laughs> but I do enjoy it. And when we go away, we run together and it's quite a fun way to see a new place. I run, I run with my sister if if we're both at home at where our parents live in Cornwall um, and I enjoy that. But I think you have to pick your person and pick your yeah. exercise right. You don't want to somebody be loads better than you that you're yeah. struggling to keep up with or somebody that's not your fitness level and then kind of holds yeah. you back. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I often go cycling with my husband and it, it is good fun, yeah. but we don't necessarily even speak that much. Just the fact that you're out there doing it yeah. with somebody else and sharing in the experience can be enough. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Yeah. And then you get home both buzzing with the same endorphins and feeling proud of yourselves. For you can both have done cake it. together. So exactly. you've, you've done the work. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's seeing my friends are also struggling as much as I <laughs> gets me through. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Your face is as red as mine. Oh, no, never. Mine's always the most red. Well, yeah. And, and actually, this week, so I went um, river swimming with. Um, this a fairly new boyfriend kind of came came with me and he was like really up for it and kind of it was uh, I was so grateful and at the end of it got out and it was you know it's just so nice to actually that someone was willing to kind of try something new and share that experience with me so I think so I think that yeah definitely had a positive effect on that kind of <laughs> that relationship and also I, river, river swimming is just lovely anyway well, so exactly in this weather exactly <laughs> couldn't have gone wrong really um, and then and then there was also another interesting point in in the article that said um simply bringing up positive memories whilst exercising can help generate positive emotions. So that idea kind of, I, I love that idea that you can actually not only get the physical buzz from doing the, doing the workout, but then you can actually kind of like imprint positive memories on top of that to kind of, kind of supercharge it as well. Um, and it was also something that from a different article I've been looking at about how the fact um, that exercise boosts your brain's ability so um oh, it was it was something i was writing for the website um and it basically makes you kind of more intelligent improves your memory so if you do your revision after you've done a workout you're actually more likely to retain that information which is brilliant so quite often i read books whilst i'm on the the the, um, the cycling machines at the gym and i quite like that idea that maybe just maybe it's making that information go in that little bit deeper i do find when i go for a run that i things that i haven't been able to sort through in my mind i get lots of clarity if i'm for running because I'm not thinking about anything else 
So for instance, before my sister got married, I was going to make a speech at the wedding and I hadn't really given myself time to think about what it would be. And literally in like a 5k run, I was like, oh, I think I'm going to talk about this. And it just all kind of settles in your brain because you're not thinking about anything else. You're not Mm, talking to anyone or I don't listen to music when I run. So it's just like freedom for my brain. I think probably most of us feel that way when we're exercising. I quite often write cover lines when I'm (laughs) (laughs) cycling. Possibly because I'm in a bit of a rush to get everything done, (laughs) multitasking. But yeah, there's definitely some mental process that happens. Yeah. And if I look back th- over over my life, cause I'm th- 39 now, so 39 years old, so I've got a bit of life experience. But when I think about times in my life when I've been at my lowest and I've had big problems to deal with, I actually that I really get into my exercise. And so I, I you know, I became a triathlete at one point when I was, because it was just a way of escaping everything. But it, it helped me cope with all that because you, you do, you just feel amazing after going out and training and stuff. So yeah, it's kind of the the article just reinforced kind of what I'd already suspected. But um, mm, it's, I like the idea of it being an escape. Actually, I hadn't really thought of that before. And the fact is, you are putting yourself first as well mm, when you go and do all that training for training for an event, or you know, that's an act of self care as well. You feel physically, in a way. physically yeah. strong, strong enough to take on the world. You know, so it's yeah, it's kind of a it's a way of taking control in a situation where you don't have much control over something. Maybe yeah. So also this issue, Abby, you went off uh, in the heatwave with Hattie yes. and tried out <laughs> chi running for our um, Class Crashers page where we always go and try something that we feel is either new or on trend or just we've always fancied doing and think people would like to read about. So given it was one of the hottest days of the year, although it's still getting hotter, <laughs> how did you guys get on? What did you think of it? Is it for you? Well, it was it was really quite a beautiful evening actually it was, just kind of yeah. trotting through the park and um the so the, it wasn't actually as physical as I thought it was going to be because it was a lot more about kind of honing your technique rather than just going for a 5k slog in 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 the dripping heat yeah. um but it was it was really about stripping down physically how you use your body when you run and the idea of using kind of your own the own natural energies kind of that that work with you which is where the the chi part comes in um and so it was it was it's almost kind of like undoing in my head the way that I always thought running has to be an effort and I have to power through it and I'm kind of fighting against gravity and trying to make myself move and he and it was it was quite gentle but it made sense didn't it Mm. didn't you think Hattie yeah I mean it kind of was taking the work out of running um which was a, quite a big change for me because I hate running. I really hate it. And so <laughs> I really, uh, so doing this, it did, I did go away being like, oh, maybe I will try it. I haven't to <laughs> be quite honest, but I might do. It did make it seem easier. And some of the things he said made sense. Like he talked about kind of tipping yourself forward to like increase, like help you go forward and increase your pace and use that kind of center of gravity, which yeah, it makes sense when you think about it, but I just never had, obviously. And so it's kind like of working swings. with momentum. Yeah, so yeah. Of, yeah. It's like yeah. swinging your arms back instead of pumping them forward because mm. naturally they'll swing right. forward on their own. So you're using kind of not as much energy to do it. So he was actually saying if you're running and you feel exhausted, mm. then you're doing it wrong. You yeah. should feel comfortable because actually as human beings, we are, you know, we are meant to meant run. To run <laughs> it's funny. I once, um, I can't remember who told me this, but it's a similar thing where we think running means a certain thing but an expert I can't remember if I interviewed them or someone told me this fact said that when you finish running we all like pant really heavily like we're out of breath actually if you don't do that 
you realize that you don't actually need to. You yeah. can breathe really normally yeah. immediately after running. I mean, I unless you've literally sprinted as hard as you possibly can. And once I thought about it, it's true. Like you feel like you need to pant like that, but you, your body actually doesn't need you to. It's quite interesting when you let your body just do its own thing. Well, it's, it's very <laughs> similar to swimming as well. So I've, I'm um, a lo- long distance open water swimmer. So I've done like 10 Ks and stuff like that. And it's all about endurance rather than sprinting. And actually when you see people thrashing up and down the pool or up and down the river, which is typically men more than women, I will tell you this, um, it's, it shouldn't look, it shouldn't be that hard work. And the whole thing with, with swimming is like you're kind of trying to hone your technique to be as aerodynamic in the water and as relaxed and as natural because you're not using up as much oxygen that way. And so you can kind of keep going for much longer. So it kind of all tied in with that as, you know, kind of lots of little light bulbs were coming on as he was talking through it. I was like, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> One to try then for the future. When, yeah. it's, when it's a bit less hot. <laughs> yeah, so um, back to you then, Laura, if that's okay. I thought I thought for the last one, um, and again, another quite surprising one where perhaps the conclusion wasn't what we thought it would be. Not that we ever decide in advance, but <laughs> when we have a features meeting, we have an idea of where we think something might go and what might be interesting about it. And in fact, for me, this one really flipped around. So in this one, um, Laura looked at social media and the impact that has on our mental health. And I know for me you know, to confess. I think looking at Instagram pictures of lots of skinny Fitzpo women doesn't necessarily have a great impact on my mental health. But in fact, when you did your deep dive into it and talked to your experts, you found there's a bit more going on. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I started writing it and researching it, as you say, I think we're all bombarded with a lot of headlines that paint a really bleak picture about social media. And there has been a lot of research and a lot of it has found links with things like depression and FOMO and anxiety, sleep problems. Um, But once you start looking into it and talking to the experts and really analysing the research, it, it changed my view quite a lot. So firstly, there's this kind of chicken or the egg argument. So lots of the research that determines that people who spend more time on social media tend to have more depression and anxiety. But the question remains, do they use social media because they're depressed and anxious Mm. or does their use of social media cause them to feel depressed and anxious? Mm. So that's quite an interesting point that none of the research can really answer that question. Also, a lot what came through was that just as watching a horror film or reading about a terrible story in the news can affect people differently. So can social media use. So while someone might watch a horror film and feel really traumatised, someone else might literally laugh at it. Similarly, someone might look at something on social media and feel like they're not doing well enough and they haven't reached their goals and someone else might look at it and feel inspired. So we all respond differently to different things. And it seemed like an important thing that I realised in researching is that a lot of the research is conducted amongst young people, mainly under 30, and a lot of them are students. And of course, that doesn't make the research any less valuable because it's really important that young people's mental health is considered. Mm -hmm. But in terms of our readership and the four of us sat around the table, probably the way it affects our mental health is very different to if you're a 15-year-old who'd grown up using social media. And it's a time in life where you are figuring out who you are and what's important to you and how people respond to you is really important. So if you're living your life so publicly 
and looking for people to confirm that you're making the right choices or you're wearing the right things or you're eating the right food, that carries much more weight than when you're an adult and you're more comfortable with your choices. Yeah. Um, so it was interesting. It also revealed that it can have a massively important positive impact. So, you know, the Mental Health Foundation said it gives voice and support to the most vulnerable. It's really helped in reducing the stigma around things like mental health. Um, and there's lots of research that amongst adults, it makes people feel more empowered, less isolated. And sorry, I'm talking a lot. But <laughs> the kind of most important thing that seemed to come through was that it's not social media that causes the negative impact it's the way mm. you use, use it, it. Mm. Yeah. yeah so in fact what you found to give away the answer in a way <laughs> and I still don't do it even though I'm very convinced by the research that you found was that we shouldn't be lurking and just reading people's yeah. posts and looking at those people doing yoga back yeah. on beaches in Hawaii or whatever but actually we should be joining communities and posting yeah. and interacting yeah and being human really but just through social media exactly so socializing is so important to our well-being which is why there's now so much research that shows loneliness and isolation is well comparatively bad for you to smoking so if you're communicating and socializing and being active within social media then it's positive as long as you do it within healthy boundaries you're not relying on it constantly looking at your phone constantly checking what other people are doing whereas if you just look and scan and feel compelled and can't not look and find yourself voyeur judging yourself almost. yeah if you're a voyeur then it tends to have a negative impact so it's about sort of taking control of it and and also it sounds yeah, obvious it, I mean, but you can decide who your friends are you don't have to follow everybody on instagram exactly. and twitter it's like you can decide what you're going to yeah. let yourself be exposed to yeah have a little audit think oh every time I look at that person I feel like my dinners are really rubbish well either improve your dinners or delete them (laughs) um that's a silly example but yeah it's an important point if if looking at certain accounts make you feel bad nobody's going to make you look at them but you so just unfollow and I also think a lot of my friends on social media are fairly (laughs) self-deprecating cynical journalists so their poster is quite amusing yeah (laughs) exactly um And yeah, I mean, a really important point to make is that the biggest causes of mental health problems are still all the classic things, you know, difficult life experiences, physical health problems, genetics, Mm. social media is just, it's an easy target, but it's not really the key cause of things like mental health problems. And it can be really beneficial to people who find like-minded people or feel that they can Mm. talk openly about something. They may not have friends that they see each week who are going through the same sort of thing as them but they can find a whole group of people online who they trust to talk to about it well, definitely when I was living abroad um I found it was such an easy way of staying in touch with friends but also those times when you feel really lonely and isolated being able just to you know hop on Facebook and actually you know sit there and have a glass of wine and chat to my my girlfriends back home it you know it just turned my whole day around so for me it was an absolute godsend do you think there could be a backlash though? There is so much negativity and I personally am already kind of turning against it because I grew up, I think when I was about 12 was when I got my space, you know, that was yeah. when it all started and I, I'm, well, I'm only 26 now, but I'm kind of like, oh, I've had enough. Yeah. I don't like it anymore. <laughs> yeah. I definitely only, I only use Instagram and Twitter. I don't use Facebook at all. And wow, that was really rare. Yeah. Well, mm. not necessarily amongst my friends actually a lot of people are just selective about which platforms they find Mm -hmm. positive so I yeah I stopped using Facebook 
probably about a year ago now and just like have a look at Instagram because I find Instagram quite like a cheery place. Did you just go cold turkey overnight or did you kind yeah. of like, gen- oh wow. Did you, did you, <laughs> and did you have moments where I was like, oh. No, I, I, I immediately had- felt like I didn't want, I because it was beginning to annoy me and I was finding it a bit of a sort of politically ranty, negative not that enjoyable, fun place to be. Like if it, if it was, if I was at the pub and that was the conversation, I'd be saying, oh guys, I've got a meeting in the morning. I better head off. <laughs> so I deleted the app from my phone and I haven't looked at it since and I don't miss it. So it was kind of the fake news and the... Not necessarily even fake news, just it felt really... <laughs> I feel sorry to anyone who was my Facebook friend. <laughs> but it felt a bit like it wasn't that fun. It wasn't enjoyable. So then why am I looking at it every single day? Well, I guess the people that you did really like you see in, in the exactly. real world. Yeah, yeah. I not, even phone them. Not on the World Wide Web. <laughs> yeah. Although you see what I would say is the opposite, actually. I do use Facebook, not very often, but I do use it and I find it really good because mm. we I have family living abroad. Yeah. And so if it is one of my children's birthdays or, yeah. um, I mean, recently... During the World Cup, I think it was the quarterfinal and it just so happened that we had family from abroad watching it with us and we were all together as a family with my parents and my sisters as well as my children and their kids. It was a really nice big family down there, did a big post and I had so much interaction from friends and relatives from all around the world. It felt like we were watching the game together because they were posting on Facebook during the game and that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's finding the platforms that make you happy, isn't it? Like I've got a big WhatsApp group with the... Yeah, Spanish bit of the family well. and we all talk yeah. well, we were all talking through the World Cup when Spain went out and then I was like are you all supporting England now <laughs> and yeah you, that as long as you're interacting positively whichever platform you choose I think it's it's a good thing it's just working out what's right for you isn't it I guess the clue is in the name it's social media right? yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> they, they kind of told us that we just yeah. didn't listen it's yeah. true they're not tricking us yeah. and you had a great <laughs> expert for this so you had Natasha Devon who's a really fantastic ambassador for young people's mental health yes, and is. I also loved the fact that some of what she was saying and what you talk, touched on earlier Laura about choosing who you follow and you're you are in control of that really tied back to the interview we had a couple of weeks ago with Jamila Jamil yeah. And her whole Iway campaign mm. about don't follow people that make you feel bad. And also that's not what is important about you is how you look. Yeah, yeah. And not just in social media, just in life, just surround yourself with people that are good to you, make you feel good about yourself. You wouldn't go and hang out with people that made you feel terrible in the real world. So why would you do it online? Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot more control, don't you, online? So yeah. definitely should. Okay. Well, that's great. I think we can wrap that up. Thanks, everyone. That was episode one of Healthy Debates. If you liked what you heard, then you can pick up the latest edition of Healthy magazine, available in your local Holland and Barrett store and selected newsstands across the country. Or you can head over to healthy-magazine.co.uk, get your digital fix of all things natural beauty, food, fitness, health and self. Now is also a good time to tell you that the first episode of Extra Healthy Debates the Healthy Debates bonus episodes is available right now. On these bonus episodes, one of the regular Healthy Debates panellists has a candid one-to-one with a special guest about the health choices that have motivated their lives. Up first is vegan chef and YouTube star Gaz Oakley, better known as the avant-garde vegan, who talks to healthy editor Anna Beryl about the defining moment that turned him vegan overnight and whether or not the vegan diet is actually good for our bodies. Make sure you never miss an episode of any healthy podcast by hitting that subscribe button on your podcast app. 
And if we put you in an extra good mood, why not share the love with a review and a five-star rating? Thank you for listening.